Our study is titled, Gridiron Glory. Every successful football team knows the importance of communicating their team tradition to the new players. How well do you know the traditions of the family of God? Let's join Dave Woodson as he introduces our study sharing how Bill McCartney, the former coach of the University of Colorado, used the victories of the past to produce success in the present. If any of you have ever played football, one of the things that's really important is to communicate the traditions of your team. For example, I remember hearing Bill McCartney, who was the coach of the Colorado Buffaloes, and he would talk about in the spring of the year, he would gather all the freshmen in, and all the freshmen would come before the team, and the seniors would get up. The coach wouldn't even do it. But the seniors would get up in front of the freshmen and they would tell the Colorado Buffalo freshmen coming in about the glories of the Colorado football team. They would talk about their Big A championships. They would talk about their national championships. They would talk about their bowl victories. Now, why did they do that? Why would those seniors communicate to those upcoming individuals on the team all that history? Isn't history supposed to be a, a dull, boring thing? No. You see, in order for you to really play football on the field, in order for you to go out, if you're a Colorado fan, or if I was talking to a bunch of Nebraskans, or here in, in Texas, if you, if you go down to A&M, if you go to Texas, I guarantee you that when you come on the football field and you begin to look forward to playing and all the roughs and tumbling, the bruises and the agony and the losses sometimes, what keeps you going is that pride. In football, we call it the football pride of the team. And the coaches appeal to it and they give all kinds of halftime speeches geared into that tradition, that proud tradition. And if it's a good football team, it has a proud tradition of winning. I want to talk to you about gridiron glory. If you are Notre Dameers, for example, if you are starting out the University of Notre Dame, which is in this little tiny town in Indiana, and no one would ever dream that, that the school Notre Dame would become the hallmark of what it means to be a football team, and yet if you were starting out the University of Notre Dame, man, they would tell you about Newt Rockney, and they would tell you about the Four Horsemen, and they would give you all this history of their football team. And when you went out there wearing that uniform, you would be proud, and you would feel, man, I am really proud part of something. One of the problems that I think that we as believers have in our lives is that we don't understand anything about our glory. We don't understand anything about our history. In fact, we have the big omission. We can call it the Bobo approach to the Christian life. The big omission, big omission. It's like we had the first century. We had the events of the first century, and Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. You learned about that at Christmas. And then at Good Friday, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And then on Easter, he rose again from the dead, and then you jump 2,000 years. You suddenly arrived in the town where you started going to church, and you started learning those stories in your Sunday school about Jesus wearing his bathrobe and walking around the countryside that was very unfamiliar to you. And that's kind of what Christianity is. It's a big omission. And one of the problems is that when you go into your school, when you go into your business, most of us feel like I'm part of this little, tiny, fledgling movement that often I hear Jesus curse and often I hear him ignored. And I can begin to think that I'm on some kind of a backwater of something 
and I, and I lose a vision of the big picture. I lose this gridiron glory. I lose all of this tremendous history of the victories from the past. And what I want to do the next couple times that we're together, I want you to pretend like you're a holy football team. And I want you to pretend that you're freshmen that are just beginning to start out. And I want to be like a senior that gets up and I want to fill you in on some of the gridiron glory in the church of Jesus Christ in the past. It's not all a good story, but it's an incredibly powerful story of how the power of this gospel, that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again in an incredible way, kept breaking forth. I mean, let's pick up the story in Matthew, the very end of Matthew. Turn to the last chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And Jesus Christ has told his disciples after he appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, he said, I want you to go up into into northern Galilee, probably up into one of my favorite portions of the Holy Land. It's up where it looks like Colorado. Probably the Lord gathered the disciples together at the foothills of Mount Hermon, the 10,000-foot peak, up there among the pine trees and the beautiful Jordan River is flowing out. And Jesus Christ appeared to his disciples there in this mountain setting. And in Matthew chapter 28, we read these words in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain. That's what I'm talking about. Probably Mount Hermon. It was one of the Lord's favorite places. To the mountain that the Lord told them to go to. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. There were 11 guys in northern Galilee that worshipped. They expressed adoration. They sang to Jesus. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I know that you rose again from the dead. And they worshipped the Lord. But you know what? There's also some other ones just like you in that little group. And that's why I love the honesty because it says that some of them worshipped, but also it adds, but some of them doubted. Boy, I'm glad the Lord did that because I'm like that too. In fact, I'm kind of a combination of the two of those, aren't you? As I gather together with you as God's people, there's a part of me that worships. There's a part of me that believes. There's a part of me that wants to trust in the promises of God. But you know what? There's another part of me that sometimes wonders, is it true? And I doubt. Did he really rise again from the dead? Does he really have the power to forgive sins? I've often told you, my dad was one of these that would say, I'm just as sure of heaven as though I've already been there for a thousand years, and now he's there, and now I'm sure that he's sure. But I'm not like that, to be honest with you. Sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I doubt. Anybody join me with that sometimes? And I, I love the honesty of God's word. Here was Jesus, risen from the dead. He had already conquered the grave. He was standing before them with the nail print in his hand and the hole in his side, and, and they were worshiping him. But the Bible's honest. Some of them said, I don't know, this might have been a big hoax. Some of you are that kind of a doubting Thomas, right? Maybe it didn't happen. And then Jesus began to talk to the disciples, to this mixed group of worshipers and doubters, and probably some that were kind of like me, in between the whole thing. Look what he says. Jesus came to them. I love the fact that Jesus comes to us. And I pray with all my heart that Jesus is coming to you today. That he's coming to me today. That he's coming to your heart. If you'll open your heart to him when you go to sleep at night and if you'll, if you'll open your personality to him, he will come to you. If you listen to him as speaking to you right now as we're studying his word, he can come to you. He can come and speak to you, even though it's 2,000 years since he rose again from the dead. That's why he sent his Holy Spirit to come. 
And Jesus came to this group of worshipers and doubters. Jesus came to them and he talked to them and he told them something very important. Look what he said. He said, then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now we've often talked about that statement. But if I was one of the doubters in the, in the 11 disciples group, I would have raised my hand at this point and said, now wait a minute, Jesus. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I would have raised my hand and said, wait a minute, I question. I call the question. And Jesus recognizes me and says, David, why are you calling the question? I said, because all authority in the world that I know of belongs to Caesar. In fact, after all, Lord, let's be honest. You know, just about 40 days ago, this Caesar took you and he put you up on the cross. And he nailed nails through your hands, put nails through your feet. I mean, it was the brave heart thing, only it was the real thing. You died. Remember that? Remember the religious leaders gathered together at the foot of the cross and they're mocking you and they're cussing you and they're yelling, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross. And man, they were doing their thing. And you tell me you have authority? It looks to me like you have weakness. It looks to me like you let political events get far beyond your control. It looks to me like the forces of Caesar, the forces of the world. I mean, I haven't ever been to Rome, but I've heard of the Lateran Palace. I've heard of this gigantic palace that the Caesar has, and people from all over the then-known world just throng to that palace to hear the great words of Caesar. And you tell me that we have all the authority on heaven and earth? You have all authority in heaven and earth. We're sitting here at the feet of Mount Harmon. We're only 11 of us. And we're scared out of our wits half the time. What chance do we have against the authority of Rome? We're going to learn about that. That's one of the questions I would have asked. But Jesus said, I want you to always remember it. I want every kid, I want every adult, and I want you to remember it in your office. I want you to remember it in your school. I want you to remember when you think that your life is totally hopeless, when you think the cause of Christ has come crashing down, I want you to remember that you follow a Savior who said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a pretty big area. Heaven, that's as far as you can go into infinity and greatness and bigness. In heaven and earth, in all of creation, heaven and earth is a merism. It's a total extreme of everything, everywhere, every place, Jesus has authority. Second of all, look what he says. Because I have authority, I want you to do something. He says, therefore, because I have authority in heaven and earth, I want you to go. I want you to go and I want you to do something very special as you go. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of every nation. So the second thing that we have, we have a command that we need to go, and we are to go and do something very specific. Every place we go, we're to make followers of Jesus. Disciples are not people that get dressed up in a Christmas pageant, put their bathrobe on, put a towel on their head, put a belt around the towel, and pretend they're disciples of Jesus, or shepherds or something like that. That's not the discipleship thing. When in the 60s, when I was coming up through university, the discipleship thing was you wear sandals like Jesus, you, get, you never take a bath, and you walk around the country, never working a job. And, and that's going to be following Jesus, just like Jesus. I had a friend, Tatsos Maharis, that grew his hair really long and, and wore a beard and took drugs half the time, because when he took drugs, he thought he was Jesus. And he thought it was discipleship. It wasn't discipleship. It was laziness. 
And the Lord had to come into Tossus' life and save him. What does it mean to be a disciple? Look what it says. It says we need to go and we need to baptize people. We need to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So we need to go, we need to go, and as we go, we tell people about the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we could spend the rest of the time just talking about that. But we must always remember that the real God of the universe is the triune God, the one God who forever reveals himself into the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them when, when people are identified with him. And the baptism represents that choice to join with Christ. To join with the one that died for them and who rose again. When people went down under the water, when people entered the water, they identified with his death. And when they came up out of the water, they symbolized that they believed in the resurrection. And from the earliest stage of the Christian movement, people would be baptized and they would be declaring the essence of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Any child could read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they could realize that the story of the Son of God, Jesus, who died so that sins could be forgiven, who rose again to give new life, and people were baptized in a lot of different ways. It wasn't the mode, even though the church argued about that. In fact, it's hard to even prove what mode the early church used, but people were baptized. And then something else, very important, they were taught to do everything that Jesus commanded them. They were trained in the teaching of Jesus. From the earliest days of our movement, people had Awana programs, only they didn't call them Awana. They learned memory verses. In fact, a lot of your Bible is the result of the, of the oral transmission of all these lessons. They called it the catechism. And the catechism was what the children repeated over and over again. That's why there's so much agreement between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of the outpouring in a literary way of the oral tradition of the early church that was communicated by write these very 11 disciples. And so they did effectively teach in the first century little children and teenagers and adults just like you're trying to carry out. And then Jesus made a third incredible promise. He says, I'm going to be with you. He says, notice, he says, I'm going to be with you. Surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. How long is he going to be with us? Forever, to the end of the age. In fact, has the end of the age come yet? Has anybody seen the end of the age this week? I haven't yet. haven't seen it. Now, I want you to stop and think. You see, you've read these verses over and over again, but I want you to think about the historical context. I've tried to pin it in for you a little bit. Here's 11 guys, kids, teenagers, adults, 11 guys up on a mountaintop, kind of like being up in Colorado, and they're gathered together around a guy that was crucified just a few weeks earlier. Now he says he's risen from the dead. He's conquered death, and he says, all authority is given to me. I want you to go and represent me all around the world. I want you to teach everybody you meet about my teaching, and I promise I'm going to be with you. How many of you are going to bet on that movement? How many of you say, man, let's get that written down. The New York Times, boy, put it on the front page. This is the up-and-coming thing in history. You think that's what the newspapers in Rome were saying at the time? How many of you ever feel a little bit ignored by the press and you think your life is really kind of insignificant and you, you feel like you're not accomplishing very much? You need to go back to the early disciples. You see, movements start with just small little groups. From a human standpoint, I wouldn't have given this fledgling little sect 
within Judaism in 33 AD, in the springtime, gathered together in northern Galilee, I wouldn't give them a plug nickel historically that they'd even be existing in 50 years. But you know what? Turn to Acts chapter 1. An incredible thing happened. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord made an incredible promise. Look what it says in Acts 1.8. Some verses that you really know well. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But, remember I've told you to watch out for the buts in the Bible, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's going to happen? When the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, what is the Holy Spirit going to cause you to do? He's going to cause you to be witnesses. Notice you'll be a witnesses in Jerusalem. You'll be witnesses in Judea. You'll be witnesses in Samaria. And that's it. Because they're all Jewish at this point, And we're only going to meet our, meet our hometown people. People that speak our language. People that dress like us. People that think like us. Is that what it says? Anybody? Does it stop there? Everybody tell me. What does it go on and say? You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to be witnesses in Judea. You're going to be witnesses in Samaria. And tell me, everybody. We will receive power, what? When the Holy Spirit's come upon us. And we're going to be what? Witnesses. You know what? Every single one of you that has Christ in your heart, that's your life. That's your job. That's your responsibility. You know, Rick might be in the Navy. You can even tell by his uniform. But he is in the Navy to be a witness for Jesus. He's not in the Navy just to serve Uncle Sam. He's to serve Jesus Christ. The Navy becomes a platform. In fact, it's really neat because the Navy pays the bill to put them all over the place. So he can be a witness for Jesus. James is in computers. He does program. But you know what James's job really is? He's to be a witness in the computer industry. And you know what? His company does a really neat thing. They fly him all the way to Japan periodically. And we don't have to pay anything for it. We don't have to have an offering in the church because his business pays for him to go to Japan. Why does that happen? I'm going to talk to you about how in an incredible way in the early church, it was through the tradesmen that the gospel was taken into all the world. Some of you are school teachers. Some of you are in the cement industry. Some of you are into steel. I want you to realize that you are a witness and you are empowered for, by God and every one of you are a witness. It's just a question whether you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus or whether you're not. Now turn to the end of the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts, we have the Apostle Paul in the center of the Roman world, in the Roman capital. And the book of Acts, I would expect, because it's all about Paul, I would expect for the book of Acts to end just the way all biographies end. I've been reading the, the biography of Winston Churchill. Now, where do biographies end? The biography begins, and every biography you begin by telling about when someone was what? Tell me. Born. Then you talk about their life, their childhood, their career, and then what happens? At the end of, their, at the, end of the biography, what's the last chapter? And they died. So when I read the book of Acts, it's a biography of Peter and Paul, right? That's what I would think. The first half of it, first 12 chapters, tell me about Peter. The second chapters tell me about Paul. So I would expect me to tell this incredible thing that Paul faithfully served the Lord. The Roman emperor put him on a block. They cut off his head. And that was it. Paul's gone. But that's not how the book of Acts ends. And there's a very important reason for the book of Acts end. Look at the very last chapter. Acts chapter 27, verse 30. For two whole years... For two whole years, the Apostle Paul stayed there in his own rented house. He was under house arrest. And he welcomed everybody that would see him. Everybody's coming to see Paul in prison. 
Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is imprisoned in the capital city of Rome. And what is he doing? In prison, people are being brought to him. You would think that prison would be the worst thing that could ever happen to a missionary movement. You would expect that you lock a missionary up, put him in a hold somewhere, not let him out. Man, that'll be the end of the missionary movement. Not in the book of Acts. People start coming to the Apostle Paul. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us that he's chained to two Romans. And he talks to us about winning the Romans to the Lord. It talks to us about, in fact, we know from early first century church history that the gospel began to infiltrate the very inner circle of the Roman emperor. Now, how did that ever happen? Because the Apostle Paul was a witness even though he was in prison. Now, most of you have the history down pretty well up to this point, Okay. So we have the first century. We start out with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the crucified Christ, the resurrected one, the one who ascends to heaven. We have the descent of the Holy Spirit. We have the gospel in the book of Acts. And the whole book of Acts is the continued working out of the power of Jesus through the presence of his spirit to be a witness in all the world. We close the book of Acts with the apostle Paul in about 60, 80 AD, imprisoned in Rome. And he has two years to proclaim the gospel. Probably got released, maybe even made a journey to Spain, one of the four farthest places in the empire, and then he was beheaded. And that was the end of the Christian movement, but that's not so. You see, the Apostle Paul had planted the gospel up in northern Galatia. And northern Galatia was a place that was running the major trade routes. It was a place like Dallas. It was a place like New York City. It was a place like L.A. It was a place like Tokyo. It was a place like Hong Kong. Northern Galatia was a place where the, where the European Empire, the Roman Empire, met with the West and the roads came through. And it just so happened that the Apostle Paul spent three years in Asia, in modern-day Turkey, and it said that the gospel in the book of Acts permeated all of Asia. And the gospel began to spread. It spread out to India. It spread out to China. Thomas took the gospel to India. And I went to seminary with Indian students who claimed in their lineage that they were part of a church that went all the way back to St. Thomas. So that first century group of believers really followed out what the scripture said in the book of Matthew chapter 28. They believed Jesus had authority. They believed that Jesus had told them to go and they went and they taught people about Jesus and they taught them to obey Jesus and the gospel was spreading out. But you know what? We often have the idea that the early church, that the early church was very obedient, that they took up offerings like we do to send missionaries out. You know, that wasn't so. In fact, you know what the major reason for the missionary thrust during the first 400 years of the church was? As we think about the conquering of the Roman Empire, because in just 400 years, a lot of you don't realize what happened after the first century. But from 100 AD to 400 AD, an incredible thing happened. The Roman Empire was slowly but surely infiltrated by people like you, by business people and tradespeople, and people that went everywhere and everywhere they went. As they ate business lunches with people, they talked about this risen Christ. 
as they sold their wares and as they went to places like Spain and they, they sold in the marketplace at night around tables as they ate their meals, they began talking to people about, hey, I have come to know that the God of heaven sent his son to the world and he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And they would tell the whole story of Jesus and they would talk about this one that rose again from the dead and people began to believe and people began to believe like wildfire. Another thing that happened is the Roman emperors, as the movement began to spread, and as business people started having prayer meetings, like some of you have in your businesses, and as people started having studies where they would gather manuscripts and they would begin to read the manuscripts that we now have in our Bible, the Roman emperors began to be very concerned about this movement that was galvanized out of Palestine. And the Jews had revolted in 67 AD and were crushed in 70 and again they revolted in 133 AD. And the Romans put this all together. Christianity, Judaism, it's kind of all linked together. It's against the Roman Empire. So the Roman emperors began to come down the Christians. And that's where you've heard those incredible stories. How they would have big football games in the Colosseum. But instead of having a football game, they would have, let's eat the Christians. And they would let lions loose in the Colosseum. And the Christians would be slaughtered and butchered. But you know what? Those Christians would huddle together and they would shout out, the Lord is coming, Maranatha, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. And Roman citizens began to look at these Christians hugging each other and having a power of heaven upon them even in the face of death. And they began to realize in the midst of their materialism, in the midst of their paganism, and in the midst of all this, this partying they were doing, that these people had found something inside Something that really changed your life. Something that gave life meaning. Gave you a reason to be alive. And gave you a hope for eternity. And so even among the, uh, the Roman aristocrats, people began to believe. And so much so that by, by the time of 312, when Constantine, his mother was a believer, strangely enough from Asia. His mother was from Asia. The very area where the Apostle Paul planned the gospel. And Constantine's mother was a follower of Jesus. We don't know whether his father was a follower of Jesus, but we do know that his father was the Roman governor that was over the northern area of Gaul. And when the Roman emperor called for a horrible persecution among the Christians in that area of northern Gaul, Constantine's father never instituted the edict. He never carried out that persecution. And we know that as Constantine gathered his armies and began to, to vie for power over the entire Roman Empire, by the time of the 4th of the century, by the time of 312, it was expedient for him. It was expedient for him to name himself a follower of Jesus. Now, whether or not it was a good thing, whether or not it was good for Christianity or not, is something we could debate, and we could debate it back and forth. But one thing that's very objective, and I want you to understand, that believers just like you, just tradespeople, just merchants, just teachers, many of them were just slaves. They were a persecuted minority, but they went everywhere witnessing the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead. They believed it. And they took it into the marketplace, and they had such an incredible movement. There was such a sweep of the Spirit of God that by the time of 312, it was politically expedient for Constantine to declare himself a Christian and for him to join with these followers of Christ. And that's the power that Christianity had. 
But as Christianity became united with the, with the secular authorities, as they politicized their movement, they began to fall into decline. And one of the things is Christianity became the dominant religion in the empire. And as Roman emperors began to supposedly worship the Christ, there was tremendous material prosperity. And there was tremendous opportunity for success, even within the Christian movement. And beautiful churches began to be built. But you know what? The people never went to some tribes that were in the north. You see, that very area of Gaul that I was just telling you about, where Constantine's father was trying to keep these forest people from coming down to the south and invading the city of Rome and sacking the cities of civilization, the believers didn't care about those frontier men. They didn't care about the woodsmen up there. They didn't care about those tribes. Very few. In fact, there was a few outcast believers. Isn't it so strange that often it's the, it's the strange ones, it's the outcast ones who are the ones that invade, who go out? There was a group of believers that kind of got messed up on the deity of Christ. They didn't understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We call them Aryan believers. They followed a man named Arius who didn't believe that Jesus was fully God. He believed he was fully man, but not fully God. And so he was messed up in his theology. But you know what? The church threw the followers out. And they spread up into those forests of what today is northern Germany. And the area of northern France. They went up into northern Europe, these Aryan believers. And they began to reach those forest peoples. And so as those peoples began to invade, if you pull back the cobwebs of your mind and think back over your studies of Western civilization, you remember some weird-sounding names like the Vandals and the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and all kinds of Goths. Remember that? Well, those were these forest Germanic tribes people that began to invade. But you know what? As they invaded into Europe, as they invaded into Rome, you know what they did? Those forest Germanic people did not destroy the churches. In fact, history records that they had a deep regard for the sacredness of the Christian churches. They did not destroy the Christian manuscripts that began to, to be copied by the thousands upon thousands and monasteries that began to develop all over the Roman Empire, even as early as the 3rd century. They respected those holy places. Why? Because Aryan believers, even though they were outcasts, they still went to those tribes and they told those people about Jesus. And in, even in a nominal way, even in a nominal way, those forest people had been somewhat Christianized. And when they came in, though they sacked Rome, they didn't destroy the churches of Rome. They didn't burn them to the ground and they did not destroy the literature. And so we begin a period from 400 to 800 where the Roman Empire begins to ooze away and the Roman authority begins to be shaken and these Germanic and European tribes are moving in. But you know what? You would expect as these wild men from the forest move in, you would expect Christianity to die, wouldn't you? It's just like at Mount, Mount Hermon in the beginning of the movement. It's just a little movement again. and It's being strangled and, and a lot of its representation are just in these little isolated colonies called monasteries where a bunch of, of what we would think of as being weird people and in reality they were very precious people that were trying to, to find a Christ-like way to live and they were, they were trying to preserve the holy books and we have our scripture today because they spent hour after hour copying out by hand the word of God. That's part of your gridiron glory. That's part of the incredible providence of God in making sure that you could still hear about Christ. 
But you know what? It's these Germanic and European tribes that eventually formed the French and the Germans and the different European peoples. As they came in touch with Christianity, you know what began to happen? From 400 to 800, the gospel began to permeate their life. Because at this time, the gospel hadn't been totally lost. And there were humble believers, just like yourself, who taught people that Christ died for our sins, that Christ rose again. They taught people to sing in worship of the living Christ. And these Germanic tribes that were overrunning the Roman Empire in an incredible thing, though they conquered militarily, their hearts were conquered by the power of the gospel of Christ. And as the message of salvation began to permeate, by the time of the 800s, a man named Charlemagne came along, and Charlemagne became the king, and Charlemagne did exactly what Constantine did. By the time of Charlemagne, Charlemagne declared himself a Christian. In fact, probably Charlemagne was more of a Christian than Constantine, but he was also the king of what was like a revived Roman Empire. And Charlemagne believed that all the world of his day needed to come under the sound of Christ and under the teaching of Christ. I don't want to paint a picture that Charlemagne was some totally heroic, beautiful Christian. Because he, he, in some ways he would butcher people because it was a wild and woolly time. But Charlemagne also believed that people needed to know about the Christ. And Christianity was able to flourish. And the movement began to prosper. In fact, the beginnings of a public school system were laid in 800 AD under the reign of Charlemagne. Because Christians believed that even children everywhere needed to be able to read the word of God. And they began to teach children. The copying of manuscripts under Charlemagne, they copied thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts because the word of God was so precious. And in all these different monasteries, the monastery movements just flourished in an incredibly powerful way. And it was a time of great Christianization throughout Europe. But you know what? Again, what did I tell you during the time of Constantine? They didn't go where? They didn't go to the Germanic tribe. They didn't go into the forest. They didn't reach beyond themselves very much. You know what? Charlemagne didn't either. You see, there was another area farther to the north. It wasn't the forest of Germany. It wasn't forest people this time. This time it was people that had never been touched with Christianity at all. This time it was wild people, wild people of the sea. And we know them in our history as the Vikings. And Rollo invaded Europe from Scandinavia. And he had never been touched with Christianity. He had never heard about Jesus, never heard about the cross, never heard, never heard about the resurrection. And these, unlike the Germanic forest people, these Vikings had ships. You see, during the first 400 years of the church, missionaries had gone even into Ireland. And though people were taken captive, like St. Patrick was taken captive, and when he went to Ireland, he was taken as a slave. But in Ireland, he propagated the gospel. And a tremendous Holy Spirit movement took place in Ireland. So much so that Ireland became, during the Charlemagne era, the place where Europe would look to find those that could teach them the Bible. They would bring Irish monks and Irish priests into Europe to teach them the Bible. But when the Vikings began to pillage, when they began to plunder, they attacked the missionary centers of Ireland. They attacked the islands, and they pillaged them, and they ruined them, and they took women, and they took them and raped them, and they took them back to Scandinavia. 
They took the monks, and this time, instead of not destroying the churches, because they had no Christianization at all, this time they were like attracted to the churches like magnets. And they invaded the churches, first of all. One of the major reasons was the churches had become the places of materialism. The churches had become the place of gold. The churches had become places where people were comfortable and where they were just living for the good life. And vast treasures were stored up in those churches. And the Vikings saw that plunder and that gold and they took it. And you would think once again, the age of the Vikings from 800 to 1200, as the Vikings devastated Europe, you would have said this is the end of Christianity. The women were taken captive. The priests were taken into, into far off, who knows where, up into, into Finland and Sweden and Norway. And you would expect that's the end of Christianity. But you know what? Some women, just like yourselves, little girls, the Northmen would come in, murder your parents, totally destroy your family, grab you with a little girl, take you up into Timbuktu that you never see your loved ones again. But you know what those little girls did? Those mistresses and those women that were taken... In the home of the Northmen, they began to tell the story. They began to tell the story. Jesus Christ lived in Palestine. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is God's son. Jesus Christ is God's son, and he came into the world. And Jesus Christ died on the cross so that sins could be forgiven, so that we don't have to go on murdering one another, so that we don't have to live just for pillage, that we can believe that there's a resurrection and Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And these dear little girls and these mothers that were taken captive and these monks that were taken captive, they told the story of Jesus. You know what began to happen? You know what began to happen? Those wild northmen of the sea began to respond to the message of the cross. They began to respond to the message of Jesus. And slowly but surely, the Scandinavian countries began to come under the message of the cross. And so as those Northmen invaded Europe, and as they took over the Roman Empire, and as they even sacked the city of Rome and many of the cities in Europe, slowly but surely, the message of Calvary began to infiltrate those Northmen. And they began to believe. So much so, that by the time of, we go from 800 to 1200, by 1200, many of those Northmen had become under the umbrella of the church. Not often a politicized church, often not everything that the Bible should be, but they became tremendously influenced by the story of Jesus in this book. But then I close today with one of the worst stories that ever happened. In 1200 through 1600, we had one of the worst periods that ever took place. It really began a little bit before 1200. There was a precious man named Bernard of Clairvaux that wrote beautiful words that went like this. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breath. Jesus, the very thought of you. What, what kind of devotion? Bernard of Clairvaux wrote some of the most beautiful lyrics that have ever been written in praise of the Lord. But you know what else he called for? He called for all of Europe to unite. And the Roman Pope got up and he announced that the armies of Europe were to march against the armies of the East, the Saracens, the Islamic horde that had come across in 600 AD. And by the way, the Islamic, the Islamic religion was kind of an amalgamation of a watered-down Christianity. Remember I told you about the power of the tradesmen? Did you all know that Muhammad was a camel driver? Do you know that Muhammad in his early years came to cities like Jerusalem, probably? Probably came to a, to a city like Haifa on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And he heard the, 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 the rummaging and the theologizing and, and all the different discussions about Judaism. And he heard about Christianity. And he went back to his desert people and he kind of mixed together the Old Testament and he kind of mixed together some of the teaching in the New Testament and he kind of amalgamated it all into a, into a rigid legal law system. In a lot of ways, Islamic faith is the result of a Christianity that's lost its dynamic of grace and lost its desire to reach out to new people. And lost its desire to bring the message of love of Jesus into other people's life. And this camel driver went back and he locked a desert people into a very strict legal moral rule. Muhammad was a guy that had, a, had, a, had an immoral past and a violent past. But he came in touch with the teachings of the morality of Judaism and the morality of Christianity. And he kind of synthesized it. And, he, and, he, and he, by, just by sheer force, he gathered these people together and their armies marched. And they spread throughout northern Africa. And they spread even as far as the gates of Venice. And it looked like Christendom would be overrun by the crescent of Islam. But then the Christian group decided to do something. They decided, unlike Jesus, unlike Jesus, who when Peter grabbed the sword in, in Gethsemane and cut off the servants here, remember what Jesus said? He said, put up your, what? Put up your sword. He said, Peter, don't you know? If I wanted to, if I wanted to have an earthly kingdom right now, I could call 10,000 legions of angels. And these enemies of mine would be incinerated in seconds of time. But this is not the time for the sword. And so Jesus told Peter to put up the sword. But Bernard of Clairvaux told Christians to take out the sword. And the Roman popes told Christians to take out the sword. And, and the events that's called the Crusades took place. And hundreds of thousands of Europeans began to march to the Holy Land to set Jerusalem free from the Islamic hordes. They didn't even care as they marched across Europe whether they came upon a Jewish town or a Christian town or an Islamic town. They just butchered like a scourge anybody in their way. And for the first time in, in the church's history, the church didn't infiltrate with the power of the gospel, with the power of love, with the power of grace, with the power of forgiveness. This time, they infiltrated with the power of politics and the power of the sword. And tremendous wars took place. And for a hundred years, the crusaders were able to set up their own little kingdom in Jerusalem. And then the great, great Saladin came in and destroyed the crusaders. And Islam has ruled in that area of the world ever since. And for the very first time in our history, Christianity, instead of slowly but surely infiltrating through the power of love, the power of the sword has created the strongest resistant block that there is even today to the power of the gospel. But that's not the end of the story. Something began to happen in the late 1500s, in the early 1600s. In the midst of, the, of Islam flourishing, in the midst of a church that had become so decadent that all of its spiritual leaders were, were very much involved in immorality and you couldn't tell the difference between a follower of Jesus and a pagan, suddenly the Lord reached down and began to work again in just a humble little monk in northern Germany. And he re-caught a message that the just shall live by faith. What I want you to get a picture of today is I've talked to you about Christianity conquering the Roman Empire. That's your gridiron glory. Believers like yourself, you know what, I don't even know the names of most of those believers that took the gospel from 100 to 300 
but they conquered the Roman Empire, believers like yourselves. You know why? They were tradesmen that went along all the trade routes, and they used those opportunities to tell the story. I'm a witness. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus is coming back again. Life is meaningful when you believe in him. From 400 to 800, forming what was called the Carolingian Renaissance, when Charlemagne came to power, it was that 400 years where believers formed monasteries all over Europe, and they copied the scripture. In fact, they copied so many scriptures that though the Northmen burned down churches by the thousands, they did not destroy the word of God because during that 400 to 800, they had copied so many manuscripts, it was impossible to burn them all. And believers like yourselves preserved the scripture for us and kept making sure that people could hear, Christ died for our sins, he rose again. From 800 to 1200, the age of the Northmen, it looked again like the wild men of the sea were going to conquer Christianity. But again, women, mistresses taken out of their homes, butchered their families, went in and declared the gospel. Monks that were taken out of their monasteries went in and declared the gospel. What I've told you today is your gridiron glory. I call it the gospel glory. That it seems like the gospel is going to be falling into derision. It seemed in your school like the gospel's forgotten. It seemed in your town that the gospel's forgotten. It seemed in your family the gospel's forgotten. Let me just drive it home very personally. Sometimes in your marriage, it seems like the gospel's forgotten. Three years ago, a guy called me up on the phone, a guy named Don. And Don told me, it was just tears. He's a real quiet guy. He's a business guy. He's one of these real rational guys. And he called me up, but this time he wasn't rational. This time he wasn't cold. This time he wasn't business-like. He was just totally broken. And he came down to my office. And he told me about his dear wife. His dear wife had just told him she was out of here. She was gone. That was three years ago. They had two precious little kids, a boy and a girl. And the little boy and their girl, like, just cried their eyes out because mommy was gone. And Cal and Casey were passed back and forth over the next three years between mom and dad. Because mom and dad went on and got a divorce. And they went to the law court. And, and the judge came down with a stamp and said, that marriage has ended. It's the end of the story. And Don tried to date other girls. And his wife tried to go out and date other guys. And, and the guy she was dating was just a total jerk. And we were saying, man, that's crazy. That's stupid. And I remember Mary and I would pray about that. And I told you I'm a doubter. So I would say, Lord, I know you're not going to do anything, but I need to talk to you about this anyway. Anybody ever pray like that? Mary and I, yesterday afternoon at 2 o'clock in Oak Cliff, I went into a little chapel. And I came right down in front of a church, just like this. And there standing beside me was that husband. And his little girl, 10 years old, walked down the aisle as the maid of honor. And she stood right there. And then that little boy, escorting his mom, walked forward. The music that was playing was, in his time, in his time. He makes all things beautiful in his time. And everybody started to cry. It was tears of great joy. And that family came down, and I said, who giveth this man to be married to this woman? And that little girl stepped forward and said, her brother and I do. And I said, who giveth this woman to be married to this man? And that little boy stepped forward proudly and said, her sister and I do. And that little boy and his sister, they, they took their mom and dad, and they put their hands together, and they went to the outside. And then we went back through the wedding vows. I said, do you promise that you're going to be a Christ-like leader 
that you're going to love this woman forever. And they renewed their vows. And then I had the little kids join hands with their parents. And I looked at that mom and dad and I said, do you as parents, do you as parents promise to never threaten the unity of this family again? Do you promise that you'll always be here for these two children, that you will be their mom and dad until death do us part, that you'll be their mom and dad forever? And that mom and dad made a holy covenant. And I tell you, if you don't believe in redemption, my brother and sister, if you don't believe in the power of the gospel, then you're not in touch with the reality. Because just like the gospel overcame Constantine, and just like the gospel overcame those wild men of the forest, and just like the gospel overcame those wild men of the sea, Northmen and Rollo and Eric the Red, and just like the gospel overcame, and I believe it's one day going to overcome Islam, for me, the gospel overcame the devastation and brokenness of a broken marriage yesterday afternoon. There's still power in the gospel. There is gridiron glory. There is gospel glory. I want you to leave here today, and I want you to go out on that football field of life, and I want you not to wear the blue and the gold of Notre Dame. I want you to wear the red and the white and the gold of the heavenly king of kings, the red for his blood, the white for the amazing purity that he produces, the cleanliness he produces because of his resurrection power. And I want you to believe in the gold because one day you're going to rule and reign as king of kings forever and ever and ever.